Welcome to the 42nd episode of season two of the Indotechno podcast. Selamat datang semuanya. I'm Alan Hallowell, founder of tech consultancy Gizmo Advisors. Now, our mission at the Indotechno podcast is first and foremost to raise the profile of Indonesia's expansive, talented, promising, and fast growing technology ecosystem. We no better address this mission than when we have the chance to speak with those who are helping to craft Indonesia's technology landscape itself. Today, we have one such opportunity. We're really pleased to have joined the show Eddie Chan and Patrick Yip, founding partners of Leading Indonesian VC in Tudo Ventures. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hi, Alan. Really appreciate you having us here. It's really been a, a privilege to, to know you all these years. And Pash and I are really excited to share more with the viewership. As we know, we've been privileged to have a lot of our um, founders already on your show in your first 70 episodes. Alan, thanks for having us. It's an honor. You're very welcome, guys. Now, to Eddie's earlier point, I believe we've interviewed at least seven of your portfolio companies here on Indotechno. So it's great to be able to pike upstream, if you will, and speak with the investors behind these stories. So thanks a lot for the time. Now, Patrick, one of the many ways Intudo differentiates itself is in its very explicit statement that we are, quote unquote, an Indonesia-only venture capital firm. Beside the size of the market and its growth prospects, what else argues for an Indonesia-only focus? Sure. As a third-generation Chinese-Indonesian, I'm extremely proud of our country's tech ecosystem's growth in the past decade or so. I feel extremely privileged to have had this front-row seat to watch and learn from the industry's best since its inception. Now, beyond the overall size of the market and growth expectations, we also understand how local contexts and nuances exist and how important it is for these founders to navigate these nuances, from dealing with regulatory bodies to conglomerates to family offices and family businesses with decades-long stronghold on commercial distribution across many industries, down to consumer behavior and tendencies. So we want to work closely with our founders day in and day out and adopt this involved approach to startup investing. Thanks for that, Patrick. Now, Eddie, you guys as GPs or general partners are also uniquely geographically distributed. Tell us about how you arrived at the decision to co-locate between Indonesia and the U.S. I think it really, in part, is serendipity. Patrick and his family have been in Indonesia, Asia, and Silicon Valley for multiple generations. In my case, I've grown up in each born here in Silicon Valley here, as well as growing up in Asia, Silicon Valley, whether it be in Taiwan and covering Chinese market for 15, 20 years. By virtue of being the only Indonesia firm with a 24-7 presence in Silicon Valley, we really are able to deliver on two of our three most critical deliverables to all our portfolio founders, one of which is really human capital. If you look today, 92% of companies with a valuation of over 100 million in Indonesia are founded by generally what we call sea turtles or bulkan, people that first studied and grew up in Indonesia, then studied abroad and came back. So we work on very mission critically on identifying that human capital and bring the best talent back to Indonesia. So today, if you look at our founding teams, 95% of them have somebody that studied in the United States. They took a lot of their learnings, whether it be at universities or in Silicon Valley here, and applied them and brought them back and pairing them with a the local context. On top of that, also, we find an opportunity to build relationships with all our capital partners. Today, as we publicly shared, we have 30 or so of the top global VC firms or their founding managing partners as investors in Intuito. I would argue that almost 50% of the growth investors have written a check into Indonesia today are investors in Intuito. We act as an Indonesia beachhead strategy 
to bring the best financial and human capital back to Indonesia while pairing that with the best hyper-local team with Patrick and our six associates, every one of which is multi-generation Indonesian, studied abroad and came back. Now, Eddie, maybe a little more on that. How exactly does this list of LPs align to this unique Indo-US access that we've created? Yeah, I think that a lot of these limited partners historically, like myself, had an opportunity to watch the Chinese venture ecosystem really flourish. Call it from 2000, 2003 onwards, no different than your experience, I think, covering a lot of these businesses as they went public. So the next generation we'd see is the shift, call it in 0405, all the majors, Sequoia, China, Kleiner, Matrix, a lot of these firms, many of which were clients of mine, started looking into, say, the Southeast Asia or Indonesia market, similarly opening up offices, thanks to companies like C Limited that you're a part of, that went public and put Southeast Asia, Indonesia on the world stage. So in 2019, 2020, and 21, we started seeing many of these growth investors start taking positions in the market where none of them, for the most part, has an office in Jakarta, in many cases, let alone Singapore. So we've really taken on that role and act as that beachhead strategy, where in many cases, we bring them in as follow-on partners, where Intudo takes all the early stage risk at pre-A, Series A, B, and we bring in all the top global funds in at BCD to really offer their global expertise we really act as that beachhead in many cases, taking their board seat in some cases as well. Very clear. So really acting both as the eyes and ears, but also the kind of educated risk takers on their behalf and bringing them in when appropriate. Now, Patrick, you're really the man on the ground in Jakarta of the two of you. If we look at Indonesia through the lens of how local entrepreneurs have grown and matured, what are the most common skill sets? and expertise that have emerged amongst the most recent cohort of first-time entrepreneurs compared to Generation 1.0? I think entrepreneurs now have the privilege to look back and learn from the knowledge base that has been built by the incredible founders of Generation 1.0. So beyond the capability to navigate local nuances, which remains as important as ever, many are now equipped with the ability to think systematically, but also with a lot of creativity from new ways to design and optimize their internal workflow to thinking of ways to hack growth, finding ways to collaborate and synergize with adjacent businesses. All of these are testament to the growth and resilience of new entrepreneurs, building many of the new iterations from Generation 1.0 that has paid for us. Excellent. So thinking systematically and creatively, I like that phraseology. Now, Eddie, what are your expectations around indigenous entrepreneurship? I ask this because I personally spent 15 years witnessing a gradual shift in entrepreneurial creation in China from what the Chinese call the proverbial haigui or sea turtles to a growing population of 100% locally grown entrepreneurial leaders. How do you expect the scene to evolve in Indonesia in this regard? Alan, this is a fabulous question. I viewed this firsthand if I look in the Taiwan ecosystem from 1983 to 1990 in the Shinshu Science Park. I saw this firsthand with companies like TSMC and others that were very influenced by these haigui, as you mentioned earlier, that took a lot of their learnings in Silicon Valley in universities and brought them back to Taiwan. We saw that in Israel and Korea in the 80s as well. China had a first row seat with a lot of those companies that you took out, whether it be Sina, Sohu, and NetEase, many people out of Dartmouth, out of Stanford, 2003 with C-Trip. And I will say, if you look back at China, Post-2008, you did have two very clear camps. We had the Haikwe Pai, and you had some venture investors that just proverbially would say, look, I just don't want to back returnees. They're spoiled and this, that. And the next generation of founders came out of Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and JD. 
we are starting to see that firsthand in Asia. It's extremely exciting. We are seeing that next generation of founders coming out of business that you are active in our friends, whether it be Gojek, C-Limited, et cetera. So we are starting to see that influx. I will say the first generation, as we mentioned earlier, where 95% of those founding teams, the companies with a valuation of $100 million, which is 30 or so Indonesian homegrown companies, is sea turtles, or we call them polkam, as in go back to your own home. But I will say what's slightly different, I would say, about the Indonesia ecosystem versus China and India is that in China, you have about 4 million STEM grads a year. So I think that in country, there's a massive amount of technical talent. And I think that so maybe over time, once you got by to Alibaba, Tencent, JD out, the next generation of founders could come out of there. If you look at India, you have about similar 3 million STEM grads a year. If you look at Indonesia, it's quite under-indexed at about 200,000 STEM grads. And if you dive deep into that, in computer science, it's a little bit more lacking. So I do think that you will continue seeing a lot of influence from Sea Turtle Bullcom founders, where one in three of our founding teams, we actually find them first in the United States. But I am very encouraged by the next generation of founders. We are seeing a lot of fabulous teams come out of a lot of these training programs, Gojek, Grab, et cetera, as well as Sea Turtles or Bullcom partnering with local founders that did not lose that local context by not leaving for four years or two years to grad school, whatever it may be. Very interesting compare and contrast with China, India, and Taiwan there. Patrick, let's kind of continue this part of the conversation. What is the most common backstory of the quote-unquote serial entrepreneur in Indonesia? Is it the Lazada, Gojek, or Tokopedia diaspora that Eddie just mentioned? Or are many of the most dynamic entrepreneurs instead coming from the global players such as Google and Facebook? Or are you seeing other common, totally local backgrounds, such as Indonesian media or other local industries? I think Eddie was spot on just now. So I think in terms of background, we don't necessarily see that all founders follow the same mold. Rather, they're extremely high value in compatibility, right? So one founder background could be international education, exposure to global markets, call it Google, Facebook, Uber, Amazon, and all those names, right? And one founder with a local background but who is extremely in touch with local market and familiar with nuances of the Indonesian industry. So combining the two is a great mix of local expert who feels the pulse of the local market and speaks the tongue with a partner that can bring in global expertise and perspectives. So this is no different than how Intuto was built from the beginning with this ethos in mind. I think in general, as a partnership, as founders, you really need to have that radical honesty with each other that you don't step on each other's toes, and compatibility is really key. Yeah, it's very cool to see that local returnee combination or even the foreigner local Indonesian combination. I frankly don't see that in many other markets. Now, Eddie, a question for you. Valuations for Indonesian startups have generally gone up and to the right for the past several years. We, in fact, seem to see a new entrant into that list of Indonesian unicorns that you referenced earlier frankly, once every few weeks. Is there a fundamental change across the startup landscape that has enabled this? Or is this, frankly, just the result of ample investment dollars and lots of new liquidity? I think it's a combination of factors. Frankly, I'd be lying if I said it's not a, a function of just QE and the volume of dollars in the market. That definitely does contribute it to some extent. But I'd also argue that it really is that we are starting to see a lot of real businesses, at least in our portfolio, we really have pride that some of our businesses actually are profitable, not just on a gross margin basis. And I think that you are seeing entrepreneurs not just build businesses and can raise money faster and lose money faster. 
They are building real businesses with at least one, if not all three of the moats that we really push for, whether it be regulatory moats, which really keep foreign competition or domestic competition out, talent moats, where it's a very niche, whether it be genetics and crypto, where you're not competing against the unicorns on talent or operational dependency moats, where you get in there and these companies need you to survive or whatever it may be. So I see the companies that are being built today are no longer calling capital as a moat. They're businesses with beautiful moats. And I do think that there is in part capital, but also the businesses, the quality of the founders is substantially higher and the amount of human capital in the markets improved marketably versus what Patrick saw firsthand when he set up Goldman's operations in market in 2012. And I personally started seeing in him when I started exploring the market hand in hand with Patrick in 2015. So it sounds like there are indeed some intrinsic improvements to these companies and we're not just one of the boats that's benefiting from the rising tide. So that's encouraging to hear. Well, Patrick, in what verticals are monetization and business fundamentals really keeping up with these growing valuations and expectations? For instance, are we seeing good monetization across B2C, business to consumer, or B2B or SaaS, which is software as a service? Are we seeing good monetization in fintech and other major categories? As we all know, I think different investors price risk and profitability quite differently. And many businesses are intrinsically different in how it grows and how it looks to generate revenue. So for example, B2C companies, growth is inevitably tied to marketing spend, while monetization relates to how well they can compete for consumers' mindshare. The risk here is that competing for consumers' mindshare may entail price war without being underpinned by stickiness that retains consumers even after discounts are removed. The upside is, of course, truly fast growth velocity once they can capitalize on that decisive inflection point. B2B companies, there's not much risk in terms of heavy price war compared to B2C and intense marketing spend. However, there is a lot of risk upfront whereby the company needs to earn trust and prove their value proposition while devoting a lot of internal resources for a handful of contracts. Oftentimes, you have to dole out POCs for free and things like that. But once they do secure those first few validating big client contracts, growth becomes quite a lot more scalable in that they have iterated towards a playbook that can rinse and repeat and work on contracts with stable recurring revenues at high margins. The growth velocity may also be slower than B2C businesses because it is compensated by predictability and margin integrity where they can demand operational dependencies from their client. For SaaS companies, the logic is similar to B2B companies, with the caveat that I think SaaS models in Indonesia require a lot of hand-holding and initial education upfront, especially as many users now have not designed their workflows and habits with software in mind. So changing that habit would be really, really key. When it comes to fintech companies, they tend to have thin margins, but deal with massive volumes of transactions per day. The risk here is that earning their way into the critical mass, be it through education, literacy angle, through really seamless user experience, reliable and stable products, or unique product offerings, or even unique distribution channels that competitors do not have. So I think different investors also have different perspectives. So some are comfortable taking risk associated with B2C, and some are more comfortable with B2B or SaaS. Wow. Really interesting and detailed analysis, Patrick. I think I'm going to have to replay your answer over a few times to absorb everything you just said. Thanks for that. Now, looking at that other side of the coin, in what categories do we run a risk that we've indeed gotten ahead of fundamentals, where maybe the startup has not moved on to a successful monetization to justify his latest round or valuation? 
I think generally there are risks when companies grow too fast. That is also coupled with weak margins. Discounts with low retention, bad cash collection and all that. All of this just means that consumers tend to not pay for your product, but they pay because it is the cheapest. So it is not a risk that I think is specific to one category, but we do find that it is more of a problem in industries where competition is saturated, where it's easy for consumers to jump from one provider to another. It is also a risk when consumers need to change their behavior to cater to that extra layer when transacting for using your product. This is especially so given how super apps now have really grown to offer so much of what consumers really need on a daily basis. Gotcha. So it sounds as though some of these models that are just growing too quickly with no reference to how to harvest that user properly can sometimes hit a brick wall. Now, when I reflect on all of the different types of Intuito entrepreneurs that we've interviewed here on the Indotechno podcast and looking at your portfolio today, it would seem to me as though we're broadly speaking sector agnostic. Eddie, is that an accurate statement? If you want to call it sector agnostic, I, I would say that we really look at each business on a unique approach. So if you want to call it sector agnostic, I think that we only will work on deals where we can deliver very concrete value. As we shared publicly today, we would argue that we have 30 of probably Indonesia's top 50 to 100 conglomerates as LPs in the fund, which for the most part, all operate very diversified conglomerates that operate across the sectors that we invest in, which broadly speaking is agriculture, consumer, finance and insurance, education, healthcare, logistics, new retail and entertainment. All our models are built bottoms up. Our process is that we meet you. If the chemistry is good, we date you. If that goes well, you get to meet the family and friends. So that's ultimately these conglomerate relationships and the regulators. If that checks out, then in turn, we if you issue that ring or that proposal diamond ring, which is a term sheet. So I would say that if you want to call sector agnostic, I would argue that it's not just sector agnostic. It's more so we only operate in sectors where we feel we have very unique, if you will, unfair advantages, whether it be through our LP base, as well as our learnings developed over the course of the last five years, where I'd argue, at least across those seven sectors I just noted, in many cases, we have the undisputed category winner, if you're to ask any investor in Indonesia, or at least a category leader. And all that is in large part because of our process, where everything is run from bottoms up, where we're not the fastest investor to move, often a three to six month process. But in that process, the founders really get to see what we can deliver, as opposed to promising a bunch, transacting, and after the fact, founding out that what we said we'd do is not what we did. So we really try to put our best foot forward. I like the analogy. It looks like you've indeed gotten the in-laws approval with the companies that you've been dating, just looking at the portfolio. Now, Patrick, what do you see as the interplay between the ravages of the pandemic and Indonesia's startup space, let's say going forward over the next year? I think the pandemic really has highlighted which segments of our infrastructure are really broken, hence revealing what are the most mission-critical pain points for entrepreneurs to address. We also expect a lot of ancillary business models that have grown on top of foundational industries as well, whose need may be strengthened by current infrastructural gaps that the pandemic have exposed. Now, for example, logistics, mid-mile and last-mile deliveries are already tackled by a lot of big players we see in market. But freight forwarding and export-import is still quite nascent. When it comes to healthcare, we have already seen the last-mile value chain taken on by telemedicine e-commerce companies, but mid-mile problem of tech-enabling healthcare facilities and clinics and first-mile problem of medical data and scientific research is still quite nascent. When it comes to education, we see that accessibility to content is also already tackled by the likes of Ruanguru, Xenius, and others, 
But the problem of schooling management in infrastructure is still a huge pain point. Now, lastly, for fintech, the building blocks of fintech payments and lending have grown exponentially in recent years. But now we're seeing the transactional platforms, insurtech, asset management companies, cryptocurrency exchanges, and trading platforms also are following the same trend. Wow, another really thoughtful and detailed response. And it'll be very interesting to see exactly how these various verticals grow and hopefully thrive as we deal with the realities of a longer-term pandemic hyphen endemic. Now, Patrick, are there any specific categories in which Indonesia, in your mind, will deliver its very own version of business model, much in the same way that China, for instance, introduced to the world Jerboa or live streaming or introduced new e-commerce business models such as Pinduoduo? Will Indonesia deliver its own contributions? This is a very interesting question, Alan. I think at the end of the day, I think we're too early to tell. I guess that's the short answer, especially given that Indonesia have only evolved from that sort of general e-commerce or general marketplace type of business models over the past three to four years. Now, only now that we can start seeing and witnessing the unique approaches that are being built on top of those foundational industries and sectors. Sometimes I don't think it is all about the business model, but also obviously about the founding team's execution, understanding of the market, timing, and everything in between. So in short, it's really more about Jodo. There's a saying in Mandarin, 天时地利人和, which means everything under the sun. It depends on timing, right? So I think there is a, a function like that. But obviously, given how we're Indonesia only, we have our eyes and ears very, very closely on the ground and watch for these developments. Excellent. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining us today. Glad we were able to finally put this together. I really appreciate the very candid experiences, the insights, and also the predictions that you've shared with us today. So thanks again. Alan, really appreciate you having us here and um, looking forward to seeing you soon. Alan, thanks for having us. Really appreciate this. Guys, you're really welcome. And we hope our listeners, as always, have enjoyed today's episode. Please consider sharing any feedback that you have about the Indotechno podcast with us. Terima kasih telah mendengarkan. Sampai jumpa lagi. Bye.